Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Perjan. Perjan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So for folks who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, so these days, I'm the creator, sole creator of Canopio.club, uh, thinking space for your wildest thoughts and plan. And um, before that, what I'm more well-known for, at least currently, is being the co-creator uh, and later the design director of Glitch.com, which is a pretty cool way to create real websites on the web with uh, server backing and uh, share them with your friends, make cool stuff. Yeah, big fan of both. Really happy to, to have you on. So uh, I guess the, the question that, that I have is if we, if we go back, you know, before before Glitch, like how how has that changed how you looked at software, or did it, or is that just have you always built software in kind of the same uh, approach? Like, how do you how do you think about taking on a project like that? Yeah, I think a big part of I guess the more you do, like I started as a designer. Well, I started as construction worker, then an illustrator, then a designer, then a developer. But going through all of that. And going through like a range of companies, I used to work at FreshBooks, I've worked with smaller startups, uh, I worked at Fog Creek before it became Glitch, uh, is the one thing that they all have in common is the business model matters more than the design in a way. Like you mm -hmm. can have the greatest designer, the best intention, but the business model, where the money comes from at the end of the day, uh, for the company as a whole, um, affects what you put out a lot more uh, than even like the best intentions at the bottom. Hmm. And and so have you been in situations where, let's say, the business model was ignored and that led to bad things or where where does that I guess, where do those things meet? Uh, it's rare for the business model to be ignored. Usually, in my experience, it's more like people try and do a thing and then learn later, usually before it ships that this isn't really in keeping with like the motivations of the software or. Um, later on, a version two comes out where, so like to use a more tangible example, let's say you make a signup form and the signup form is like very straightforward. There isn't a lot of cruft around it. It's just, it's a functional, like here's a thing and you sign up. But um, the organization and its incentives may be more around moving you to other products and teaching you about like a suite of products. Um, and suddenly your, your simple thing gains a lot of additional requirements. And that sort of thing like happens, you know, like there may even be a requirement that's a little shady um, <laughs> and it's kind of up to you uh, whether, whether how, how much you fight against that, but like hopefully not dark patterns, but things below dark patterns, even something benign, like sign up for our newsletter, but let's make that button a little small to opt out or make the language a little confusing. I mean, mm -hmm. those things kind mm -hmm. of affect what ends up in the world, I think a lot more overall than, than like an individual designer. And so I think as an individual designer or developer, looking at like the sort of larger picture of how these things come together, help you make better decisions about where to work or like what things to ask for, or, like how to negotiate in conversations like that. Because when you know what other people want, it gives you a good position, a good place to like have a conversation. And at the end of the day, like having conversations is the job mm -hmm. of a designer and developer. That's the hard part. Oh, I the love that. The part is just, it's pretty chill. Relatively <laughs> Is the is that something that you always knew, or was it over time that you came to value those the the conversation as the the core? 
Yeah, definitely over time. I think it's even easier to to get to that point as a designer because designers, you know, communicate with a lot of other designers in in kind of abstract ways more often, but also have to can have to do a lot more convincing um, than other roles do to like people who aren't in design, like about why a specific approach or design visual or otherwise is like the right way to go. And so it requires you to be like a negotiator, a listener, a communicator, essentially, more than just communicating to computers to make like a picture appear in sketch or Figma or whatever. It's about communicating to people to make that sketch makes sense. So we, you know, as developers and designers, especially designers, you bridge that gap between humans and computers a lot. Interesting. So you value communication along both sides. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I think about that a lot in terms of management. And so one of the paths uh, for developers as you get more senior is certainly you can continue down the individual contributor down to, you know, or, or up, you know, towards architect roles or mm-hmm. things like that. And then, of course, the other branch is management. And I often have heard that referred to as that's where you're programming people. And it's interesting to me to hear you talk about design as involving a lot of that, because I think designers are often thought more as individual contributors. And so it's interesting to have that be part of the gig. Uh, how how did you make that? Tra- it's, uh, so I heard I heard construction worker, illustrator, designer, developer. What led to those shifts or how did you decide you even wanted to cross uh, some of those boundaries? Well, I mean, the construction worker part was like summer work that became like post-graduation work because I did my degree in biology and didn't really wasn't really like didn't have the greatest aptitude for memorizing things, you know, the doctor path. So, but then I decided construction was too hard because it's pretty hard. Um, And um, eventually went to grad school for urban design and urban planning, and then realized it's kind of a circuitous road, but learned that I liked the kind of drawings and map making Mm -hmm. side of things and hated all the urban policy, like the real planning stuff. And so I decided to do some drawing, got a job at a really not great company. You know, it was basically a company that made Banneret back when those <laughs> were a thing that we were all over the web. And so, you know, I'd be spitting all, all these things, um, but also making some cool graphics and some internal tooling kind of on the side. And that involved a bit of UI design work, which eventually led to me building the things that I designed. So in that sense, it was actually pretty cool to be to be given so much responsibility and being essentially thrown into to the weeds, into the fire, like, you know, learning Git on the first day is like a lot, probably even still today, not much has changed, unfortunately, uh, in that respect. But yeah. And, and, you know, just kind of going from there, just kind of trying new things and doing a lot of side projects and getting better jobs, I guess. <laughs> As, yeah. So it sounds like it was pretty, pretty iterative. Um, and yeah, so the I, I guess I'm curious because I think a lot of uh, or, or at least some uh, people listening and it's interesting, I think I kind of came from the designer side uh, as well. So I think uh, people listening will have or are interested in making that transition. Were there parts of it thinking back that that were difficult or that you do have you know, looking back ways that, that you handled it well, or was that kind of a just sort of a natural transition for you? Like you said, you you were creating these things and then and then you wanted to just, you know, it was easiest for you to build it. And that was that was sort of natural. I think with learning new things for both designing and developing, there is always like these humps, like you have to like climb a hump and then it's like, oh, wow, I'm on top of the world. 
and then a new hump appears and then you know like kind of this like sine wave cycle of like being sad and being elated but um oftentimes the sad hard times are a little longer mm-hmm. um but like that kind of thing repeats itself the frequency over time of like of the cycle of oh this is a new challenge and it's hard and now i've gotten it becomes a lot shorter because you're used to like being in that kind of discomforting world mm-hmm. um that's something i've definitely experienced with side projects or kind of role changes or organizational changes um yeah yeah i uh what comes to mind for me is also the the more of that those that you've overcome i think it's easier to to not despair you have a little bit more hope for sure a little bit more grit like you know that you've done it in the past and you can remember like yeah. well i thought it was if pretty you've hopeless done it once, yeah. you can do it again <laughs> yeah it's yeah. like okay well now i remember i thought it was hopeless then too and and i i was able to stick with it and, and but definitely the it. first couple times that happens it's a, a bit of a jarring kind mm-hmm. of experience i would imagine mm-hmm. remembering back yeah do you find that you still like like that design background that illustration background uh is really important for you now when you're you're building things and you're you're uh, doing the development oh 100 percent. because like for the kind of building that i do these days with canopio i'm developing and designing kind of simultaneously um mm-hmm. so like being able to like really rapidly assess does this work why doesn't this work and kind of change as i go kind of lets me create like a really high quality product or feature mm-hmm. um in a very like relatively short amount of time because there isn't like this kind of step and delay between like a handoff between another person and discussion. So having both of those mm-hmm. sides of my brain, um, you know, development and design side kind of both working every day is super helpful. Do you find that that's, that tends to be an issue with a lot of other projects is that there is this, this handoff um, that where things get lost in translation? Uh, I think that definitely is like, a, like it's kind of a good and a bad, like the theoretical good is really mm-hmm. easy for people to understand. Like you have one person doing one thing, another person doing another thing, and they can both kind of work while the other is doing something else, right? But yeah, definitely a lot of things get lost in translations. If you think of like even a static mock-up or something really in depth, there's still like details in actual code that just aren't reflected or can't be reflected in, in a static mock-up. Um, and maybe you can get most of the way there with like a spec and, you know, hard design, like mockups and stuff like that. Um, but it's still like, it's not just a handoff. It's always like an iteration. It's a cycle. You got to go back and forth, back and forth. Um, and whether that's between two people or both sides of your brain, both pieces of that have to be kind of like, have to have a pretty good relationship. It helps when you have like, I've noticed that other companies, you have a developer and a designer who work together for a really long time. And they kind of have that rapport. I think that makes that cycle like mm. way easier. I think that's a big part of it and something we, we don't really optimize for. Usually it's more like mm-hmm. which, which developer cog fits with what design cog in this particular agile sprint, epic, whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think a rapport can, can kind of make some of those mm. hurdles a lot easier to overcome. Yeah, it winds up maybe helping it become more of a, a conversation rather than just the, like a one-way makes me think of the totally. waterfall design process where it's like, nope, here's all the specs. Like, don't talk to us anymore. It's like you're, you yeah. know, figure it out. Uh, and, and that kind of thing makes rapport pretty hard to build. <laughs> that kind of relationship with someone. Yeah. I think the other thing, too, that, that if you imagine it as like upstream, downstream, is that oftentimes the people designing it, maybe product managers or, or the designers, can't actually know what is 
possible or easy. And it's it's just sort of difficult to know ahead of time until mm-hmm. there's and I think that's why prototyping is often very important is that you you can have that that feedback and the more rigid those designs and the less iterative it is, the more trouble you can get yourself into. I think I, I saw, you know, some of your write ups about how glitch um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, what glitch is first. But, you know, I think I saw in some of your writings, it seemed like that iteration was really important. I think it came about. I don't know if it was actually I mean, maybe you can talk about it. I don't know if it was a hackathon or something, but it seems like it came it first came about in a very sort of rough state. And then there were demos where it was refined over time. And yeah, just maybe to tell, you know, a little bit about the project and how how it was worked on. Yeah, sure. So like lay some groundwork, like I was some ground, whatever perspective. Um, Glitch, now it's a company, but before it used to be um, a product inside of a larger company called Fog Creek. And Fog Creek, they made Trello, spun that off now it's something. They made Stack Overflow, spun it off, and it was their own thing. And they were kind of looking for a third thing to be like, you know, their next big thing. Um, and so um, the staff at Fog Creek had what was known as um, a Creekathon, Hackathon. I can't remember the name, but it was like some sort of punny name. Um, <laughs> and basically people kind of divided, subdivided into like groups of two to four or six. And they kind of, we had two weeks to like work on like, you know, mock-ups or a presentation to present to the rest of the company about here's a thing we should do next. And there were a couple of pretty good ideas and you know glitch was one of them it was um it was me and daniel x um he had this like concept for something that was code pen ask but you could like publish there was like a little git publish button where you could write some code in the text editor click publish and it would kind of just be there on the web and we thought what if we kind of gave that like a server and some other stuff but even then like it was extremely early we didn't think of things like collaborative editing and all of the all of the features that kind of define the product Mm -hmm. now but it was basically like a couple boxes and some some dialogue boxes and you know like i did some mock-ups to like sell sell the idea of um what it could be like if there, if it was like we kind of had this product that was like the text editor talked to the environment which talked to the deployment system um and it was all like as you type here's the thing you see and how that was so much better than the status quo of you know you you type in a text editor then you find a way to get it up to a place and then you know like you have to learn a lot of terminal incantations throughout all of that and so yeah um after that every two or so weeks um all the teams that sort of passed would present hey here's like the here's what our progress has been like uh, so far and you know sometimes those mock-ups but most of the time it was very basic html prototypes that we were just kind of fleshing out um and you know m- even for like probably 10 weeks after yeah like every time we presented it would just crash immediately but like, <laughs> it was a it was an audience that obviously knew how building things was done sure. like joel spolsky and you know uh, michael Pryor and you know stuff like like people who have who have made stuff mm-hmm. so i guess it's par for the course and then yeah um i got to see firsthand like the experience of me being the only one in in the new york office which was our only office like uh, working with Daniel, who was remote in California, um, and just having that be our team to having the team expand to two people and to five and then 30. And then I think it's at 100 now, but it was 50-ish when I left. But like it, you know, like that process of this is a small skunkworks thing to it's a product to it's a huge company with now investment and like large expectations. It's a, you know, a real trip, a real ride. <laughs> So what did you, yeah, so so definitely you you certainly were there at the very beginning 
and you you were there for for the ride sounds like there was a lot of it that you you really enjoyed so what how did you think about what you were you were doing like why did you want to see it succeed like other than you know just like well i made it so it should succeed but like i imagine you were thinking about a particular user or helping people in a particular way or at the very least trying to change how things were done just because you thought it was wrong or inefficient. But like what, like what, yeah, what, what drove you to, to push on and make it better and better over time? So there was like, you know, the functional thing, put making and creating on the web should be easier. But we also had this sort of like meta conversation about what a tool should look like and how it should kind of react for like a future generation of developers that didn't really have the legacy baggage of, you know, like in the terminal, all that good stuff. Um, and, you know, the kind of graphic design language uh, that we'd come up with for Glitch and like the way even the marketing and the product were so tightly connected back in those days, the way illustrations were kind of used, but not like, too, like it was just trying to find that line, uh, even the way emojis are kind of integrated into the interface, and but nested always one layer down um, was just like, it was, it felt like we were doing something kind of groundbreaking in, in the sense that like software, especially corporate or commercial software does not or did not look like glitch maybe in some cases still doesn't mm -hmm. um and you know just how we were we were building with a lot of expertise like the team was like super experienced so there were things we could do that were pretty bleeding edge like um hot swapping containers so that you can type and then a new a new environment is basically being created and and like all this and like being swapped into to show you in the URL. And you didn't even know any of that was happening. And mm -hmm. we were trying to get it under 200 milliseconds. I forget. I think we did a couple experiments where we felt like here are the thresholds where like under 200, it feels like magic. Under 500 milliseconds, it feels like kind of pretty good, really good still. And over two seconds, it kind of feels like crap. Like we were really kind of optimizing for milliseconds and shaving stuff off. And that's a really fun mindset to be in. It's very pure, I guess. Mm. Yeah, so it sounds like there was a, a pretty big emphasis on performance. For sure. um, one of the things that that you know mantras that that I often repeat is um, you know make it work, make it right, make it fast. Mm -hmm. Do you do you believe with that that order, or do you think that you have to start you know always keep performance in mind, and that if like you don't, you're just going to wind up with that two second thing, and it's almost not not worth doing. I mean, how do you come down on that? I'm like medium diligent, I'd say. Like, I think especially in the early days, it's really important to make the skeleton of how everything works really fast and like really feel fast, even when it's not. So for example, in Canopio, when you type something into a card, there's no like save button um, and there's no delay when you type to seeing the thing. Um, and so if you collaborate with someone, you can see them as they're typing, type the card. And the way that works is I'm trans I'm, I'm broadcasting the changes to everyone and to yourself and showing you the changes before the server has like completed saving it. I'm kind of like assuming success because mm -hmm. like I don't want to like show people that delay. And it's kind of like a magic carpet for stuff like that, where you just kind of make sure like the fundamentals just feel immediate. But there are times where, you know, you need mm -hmm. to like make new big features. And sometimes you're going to have to use some of that from that clean perfection and like add a little bit of gunk to it <laughs> and then maybe later pay it off, but maybe there's going to be some time where you're going to have to add gunk. Mm. Um, but then you, you have this cycle of either going through it or making sure other parts are like really clean and like mm -hmm. it's a net win overall, you're still keeping performance in mind, but you're not being hyper about it because there is sometimes a trade-off between 
shipping a feature fast and shipping it perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also think that, that sometimes developers can get really lost chasing performance that doesn't really matter. You know, they might they might sure. be like optimizing some, yeah, you know, some sort of looping or, you know, matching thing over here and shave off, you know, a few milliseconds, but saving to the database or something like that or making a, a, a call to a yeah. third party service is, is just dwarfing it, you know, because it's hundreds or I guess. Yeah. yeah. And there's like other kinds of speed, I think, that are important. Like there's the raw performance speed. There's, you know, of the thing writing to the disk or whatever it's doing. There's also the speed of like how the user perceives it. The perception of speed is really like a, a design craft that's also very engineering heavy. And there's also kind of the speed of thinking about the maintenance burden, thinking about, you know, what does this code look like to read later mm. um, and optimizing mm -hmm. for like something that's that you can build off of and other people can understand. And you'll be able to understand in like a month later uh, mm -hmm. when you forget everything you've written. And sometimes, you know, going too hard in the weeds makes makes some makes code like pretty gnarly. Yeah, maintenance. And so it's kind of always a balance. Yeah, I was gonna say maintenance is is super important. I mean, there's it, you know, it's sort of are you are you running a, a sprint or a marathon? And um yeah. you know, if you yeah, if you don't really think about if you don't really think about the long term or like that's not I mean, it's tough though, right? I mean, sometimes it's it's difficult to make that trade-off that, okay, I'm gonna really try and make this clean and maintainable. And well, this project isn't really gonna last that long. You know, there's like a window of opportunity, right. it may not take off. And so I just wound up putting all this extra effort into trying to make this maintainable in 10 years. And well, most projects don't really last 10 years. But on the other hand, you know, if you don't you don't pay attention to that at all. Uh, <laughs> you might, uh, you yeah. might really hurt hurt the project. I think the best approach I found to address that is to just make that a public question, uh, public in terms of like in your organization. So, if you know, like if you if you all are kind of set on this mindset of we're building everything for ten years, or we're building like the core of the product to live for ten plus years but there's certain things we want to get to the market fast. And we all kind of know, we all share the same priorities and the same sense of what's strategically important to get out fast and what's core. Mm -hmm. I think that kind of helps. Like it makes the code reviews a lot easier. Absolutely. But yeah, I think that's like, it's a hard thing for a person to judge individually, depending on, you know, the complexity of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, just because, yeah, like, how do you make that call if you're a junior dev or something inside a Fortune 500 company? Yeah, you you actually reminded me that I think a lot of a lot of friction between people within companies is is okay. How do we make these trade-offs? How do we make that choice? And I think we should do this. You think we should do that? And now we're you know, sort of like yeah. But I guess in a conversation like that is is sort of like why you think we should do that. And it's, and the why in this particular example is because I think this code is important enough that we don't ever want to rewrite it or it's got to last for 10 years. And that's an easier like conversation to be productive about rather than I like this function or I like yeah, this oh, absolutely. framework. And, and where I was going with that is, it, you know, it winds up being a question about values. And so values are often... It's almost about the trade-off. It's sort of well, well, what are you going to give up to to maintain that value? And so, one that I that I think about a lot um, that was you know people are familiar with is Facebook's move fast and break things. Even though I don't think they they really tout that mm -hmm. uh, anymore. Um, and so, move fast and break things. I think is a is a really good illustration of a value because they are they are telling you what they what they want and what they will pay for 
like what they're going to like, you know, what they're going to pay in order to get it. And I can't just imagine a more unApple value, right? Like that's just not. <laughs> right. But I think in both of those companies, like because the vibe was is so public to mm-hmm. the world, like, you know, if you're a person in Facebook and, and people are like, YOLO, we got to ship this shit. And, <laughs> you know, you feel otherwise, like when the company mantra is move fast and break things, you kind of, it's easier to have that conversation be like, well, we're going to move it. We're going to move fast. We're going to break things. It's like, whatever, who cares? And because mm-hmm. everyone kind of has that shared understanding, I think that makes life a lot less stressful in companies like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, okay. So what are... I mean, I guess I would ask, like, so, so we've talked about some of your values, like what are other, what are, what were some of the values of, of glitch? And then actually you haven't talked about Canopio. So maybe after that, you can talk about what Canopio is. And I'm curious, what, what values have you carried on to Canopio and, and how have your values shifted in, in building, um, that project? Okay. Well with glitch, I think a lot of the values are actually very similar, mm-hmm. but with Glitch, we wanted to build something that was kind of targeted at people who weren't necessarily part of the in-group. Mm. Like they weren't, they weren't like the kind of person that was like, "Hey, you should just use IFTT and like stitch some stuff together." And they weren't the kind of person that was like, "Hey, you know, remix this open or what? Did, oh, fork this open source project and like open this command line and run these programs." You know, there's like a, a meaty middle ground that we thought was like really big but was kind of really silent. Mm. Um, and we did everything that we could around, you know, the way we communicated, the way we, we visually designed the application to kind of target those people. And it was, it was, it's like, you know, that line of playful, but also you could use this seriously, which is very hard. I don't know if we necessarily yeah, I was gonna succeeded, say that's, that's, but that's a difficult, yeah, that's a difficult line to walk. Yeah. And I think we, we inherited, we were working in the same office as Trello at the time. So we inherited a lot of our sort of principles from Trello, like this idea of um, mm. optimizing, wanting to sell to larger comp clients in the future, but have that sale be like very bottom up and organic. So I'd walk by the mm-hmm. Trello sales office pod thing. And every conversation was like, hey, Spotify, did you know that like 50 of your people are using Trello? You should <laughs> like pay us some money to be able to manage those people. And we really <laughs> wanted to or- optimize for having those kinds of conversations. So we made everything very shareable, very like, sticky and had like invite flows that were like very front and center. And we tried to make the conventions that people already understood, how sharing works in Google Docs, for example, like live with that kind of like baseline is oh a lot of people are going to come from this experience and we want to make them kind of seem very similar i think the most interesting thing uh to me is like i'm curious like how did you if if the meaty middle was large and silent how do you how did you know that they they existed how did you know what they wanted or what would be um attractive to that type of person like how how did you come to the the conclusion that this would make their lives better or they all shared something that was missing or, or kind of an opportunity for them? Like, how did you, yeah, how did you keep them in mind? Yeah, well, internally, it was really contentious. Like mm-hmm. a lot of, not everyone was necessarily convinced that this was a thing. I remember like the longest thread um, I ever had was about this at Fog Creek. I think it was like 40 messages, which is probably not that long to most people, but to me, it was like, this is a nightmare town. Um, 
but like you know um one or two developers and devopsy type people being like this is crazy why would anyone use this if you, they couldn't code then they'd use whatever and mm. if they could code they'd they'd open up their mm -hmm. shell and and you know type in vi blah 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 um to, to get started with a web project and i think it was joel who kind of ended that thread with with the kind of um rationale of if you make something easier fundamentally you're just going to have exponentially more people doing that thing um which you know has always kind of stuck with me but also um, we were really inspired by other projects, uh, specifically like Ruby on Rails, where when they first kind of came out, mm -hmm. they were just regarded as like, oh, this is like a toy. It's not serious work. Uh, and then like five years later, it became like it was like the de facto standard way for a time to like make a thing on the web or make a web app. And so we wanted to kind of follow some of that trajectory. And so we were cool with initially mm -hmm. it being seen as like a toy and then and then later on. People didn't even realize what was happening, but then because of the lower friction, they would just kind of intuitively prefer to do projects on Gulch. Right. That was like the original, I think the the kind of mission direction of the company has changed since then, but back then that, that was, was kind of yeah. our, our tent poles. Got know? it. And then, uh, okay. And then now you've you've left and now you're, you're working on Canopio. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell uh, people a little bit about what Canopio is? Sure. So Canopio is, I guess, what I like to call a spatial thinking tool um, for new ideas and hard problems. So I noticed while I was at Glitch that I would be, while making like documents and specs and planning documents and stuff like that, um, I would be working in Sketch, making mockups, but I also be leaving myself text notes, like floating text notes wherever, mm -hmm. like randomly. And I found that was a really good way to like organize my mm -hmm. thinking. But that, you know, this is the kind of thing that not a lot of people have access to. Like every time we type in like a text document, uh, it's a very linear top down sort of thing. And that requires a lot of diligence. It's a lot harder, let's say. Um, and so I thought, what was the easiest way to express getting an idea on a page, which was literally just clicking anywhere on the page, not having to think about structure and just typing thoughts and then having that kind of balloon out and being able to connect things that were related and seeing what kind of came from that. And to do that collaboratively felt like a new kind of thing. Yeah, so I don't know if that explains what Canopio is. I think you have to try it. Yeah, I mean, for me, I thought of it as is like it's closest, at least when you look at it, like a mind mapping tool. Yes. And I think there's a lot, um, forget the names of ones out there, but I've, I've certainly found those helpful in the past when trying to organize a bunch of things going in my life, like, you know, like projects. You know, it's the, I guess you would call it a tree a tree structure at the very least um like it's a tree structure but unlike um most traditional mind maps where one document is one big tree you can make you can put things wherever you want you can make trees certainly and there are a lot of tools to help you do that but if you wanted to make a branch of a tree become its own separate tree and you know kind of chop it off from the main tree which is abstract when we just say it with words mm -hmm. but you can totally do that in canopio and, and then that i think kind of makes it not strictly a mind mapping tool like it means you can use it for things that are that are a lot more collaborative yeah so i what, what i find really interesting about it is that it takes the power of mind mapping tools which i think a lot of people uh, get a ton of value out of um, and it makes it a lot more flexible and that's kind of what you were saying that, that yeah totally it, you know each each page or document, what you call it, doesn't just have to be one tree, it could be multiple trees, and they can link together. And so it makes it, I guess it's, you know, just more of like a graph or multiple graphs with, um, you know, edges and, and yeah. um, 
nodes. But what's so cool about it is, is it seems like you created you created your own tool, which then helps your own thinking. It's like you you created a tool that didn't exist that then like helps your your thinking. So it's a little bit of that entrepreneurial scratch your own itch, but also being able to, I don't know, invent a new tool, which is which is really compelling and interesting to me because I think I think largely I think that's something that's available to all developers that this power that you can create something that improves Mm -hmm. your life it makes you more productive and then something that I just love is the idea that the something like helps you think better I'm like always in love with new frameworks or or ways to overcome cognitive biases or or see better or think more clearly and so for you to to invest time in creating a tool that helps you do that I just I absolutely uh love so that's that's a little bit. I mean, hopefully, uh, you know, if you're listening to this, you'll go out and you'll check out Canopio and and actually see what we're talking about. I think that'll make it a lot more more clear. Um, and then in terms of of values, like, did you? Yeah, I mean, I, I know, the other thing I'll say is that when I first saw Canopio, I didn't know you were behind Glitch, but I saw Canopio and it had that same energy and that same wow. This this looks and feels different this this takes advantage of i'm a huge fan of the web and and web applications and so when something takes advantage of the of what's possible and it feels a little bit more native um and not really trying to copy you know or look like a different thing i think that's really important to me and i take notice and then also the style i I was thinking like oh wow this is reminds me of glitch and then saw that you were you were the person behind uh, both. So I am curious what values you took along and, and then what what new things have have come up as you've been working on it. Yeah, well, definitely that whole speed thing. Mm-hmm. But I think part a big part of that, I kind of connected it to both Glitch and the idea of performance more generally is sort of riding the technologies of the web. So there are a lot of other tools you mentioned, like in you know the mind mapping space, especially that give you this kind of canvas. You can kind of zoom in and out of it and place things wherever and maybe draw things. To do the zooming, they kind of recreate the the document object model in Canvas, and they sort of kind of create this bespoke graphical environment, essentially. And it it gives you like the ability, especially as a designer, to be exact on like what pixel goes where, uh, especially when you're zooming in and out. But compared to what mm-hmm. Canopio does, which is literally like all the cards on the page just absolutely positioned DOM elements, it's very like you can inspect the page, and it kind of just looks like a website. Uh, no matter how complex the structure is, being able to like use the native DOM means it's like way faster. Um, there are like a bit more graphical glitches that I'm still trying to iron out. It really does make you push the limits of what's possible and like make all of that work both on a desktop browser, but like also fully work with touch and on like you know on a small mobile phone. Like make and not having any controls be hidden. Um, you know, having things kind of work essentially, if you can do it on desktop, you can do it on, on mm-hmm. my phone was also like a big kind of design principle for me. I think it's a good way to think about an interface just in general, because you kind of stay away from things that end up being dark patterns, um, like hover only controls or hamburger menus and things like that, uh, which are like all too common, uh, because I think people optimize for what's going to look pretty in a mock-up oh, interesting. Um, versus like what's <laughs> yeah. going to look like a real instrument when you're using it. Um, like I like to think of the controls of Kenobi as a very simplified, very simplified fighter pilot cockpit 
where like you see all the little clocks and dials and whatever, and you can just flick a switch and, you know, kind of go to town. But, you know, it's, it's definitely balanced. I don't want to put too much in your face all up front, um, but I don't want to bury everything that's important. So, yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that because I, I think one of your one of the principles is simplicity. I think you do want to remove as much as possible. Um, and so to hear hear the fighter pilot uh, cockpit analogy is a little bit surprising to me. So how do, how do those two fit together? I think there are two ways to think of simplicity. I think if we think of a fighter pilot, and let's say you're going to war and you're doing some cool dog fighting or whatever fighter pilots do, and you know you want to like launch a missile or whatever, but you've got to like open a menu, wait for it to animate, and like click the right <laughs> plate. Like that. you wouldn't find that very simple. You might think of it kind of the opposite of that, right? They just have Clippy, Clippy exactly. pop up. I see you're trying to launch yeah. a missile. I think yeah. simple is there. There may or may not be a learning curve in terms of simple, but simple is like learnable, intuitive things. Kind of work the same way. If you see a thing that kind of looks like a button. You click it, it acts like a button and all the buttons kind of act the same way. Like I think mm -hmm. you can have simplicity through consistency. And I think when you build like a very powerful tool with like a lot of GUI essentially, like having that consistency lets you get away with putting more things in more places. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's again, it, it reminds me of speed where you, it's not just when I interact with something, it responds quickly. It's that when I have an intention to do something, there won't be a lot of time in between me wanting to do that thing and achieving my my goal, like firing a missile or, or yeah, totally. whatever. And I think the downside of that approach is not scale infinitely. Like the hamburger menu, I think really works one because it, it gives you that pristine mock-up, mm. but two, because you can bury in unlimited things in that hamburger menu. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, whatever corporate priority is like up this week, you can put a button in there. Now hiring, yeah. now hiring, put it in that menu. Junk um, drawer. But when you when you don't do that and everything's kind of up for you, you like the interface is wearing its heart mm -hmm. on its sleeve, you know, in a way. There there is no junk drawer. And so you you are motivated to not have junk, basically. Love it. Um yeah. and I like that challenge. And I think it makes the interface a lot funner to use too. Yeah, I um no, I completely, I completely agree with that. So what do, so what, speaking of challenges, so what do you find uh, to be most challenging working on a, an ambitious project like uh, Canopia? Um, well, I mean, I am doing it all myself, which is, which is a challenge unto itself. I think one of the reasons I feel relatively confident about doing it myself is an observation again from Glitch, where when we were like a team of three, like our, our velocity and like, you know, the amount of things we were shipping and the professionalism in our communications was kind of at a really competitive place, you know, um, and it kind of made, made mm -hmm. me think like, if we could do this with three people, then like, but like at the same time, when you add 10 people, you don't get three point whatever times more productivity. I think there's a lot to be said mm -hmm. for like a tight knit or one person team and their ability to do a lot. But conversely, I'm also struggling with the things I'm not as good at, like marketing um, and like communicating to people who mm -hmm. who come from a mind mapping space or some other place that maybe doesn't involve anything like this kind of tool, what Canopia is for and how to use it. Um, so like having to wear a lot of hats is definitely a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm getting better at it slightly. I'm building my own like internal tools, make the parts yeah. I don't like a lot easier. Well, yeah, I, I, I definitely love it. Oh, so in your opinion, though, then then why if if the speed of uh, glitch or, or I don't know any company I feel like all companies follow this pattern you know if they if they 
they do have a higher velocity with with a smaller team. I mean, what is the advantage of of growing it? Is it purely a you know that's just that's what's always done, so that's what we're going to do, or is there some other necessity as a product matures that that takes a higher priority? I think there are definitely, you know, every case is different, but I think there are definitely times where you need other people and, you know, you, you want to grow the team also, but also I do think some of it is just sometimes like ego. Like if you're a CEO, I think the way you brag to other CEOs is like yeah, saying how big how is your company? Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. How many people I employ. And yeah, I think that it wouldn't surprise me if that was also kind of a motivating factor. Um, and if I take ego out of it, that definitely takes that reason out of it. Yeah, I, I think it's not as pure and functional uh, in all cases as we think. It's funny, speaking of ego, <laughs> I feel like it kind of goes the other way, too. So, one of, you know, one of my projects is is Rambly, the uh, location-based audio app that I've run uh, JSLA and other oh. other meetups on. And actually, there's there's a little bit of simil- similarity, too, where it looks like a game. It looks like, a, you know, a 90s RPG. And um, people always ask, like, oh, how did you build it? You know, how are you doing the canvas? And I'm like, oh, no, it's not canvas. It's just DOM. Like I use React and everything yeah. you see is a div and I'm just updating the <laughs> the the background. Um, and so I I love your your approach for for uh, similar similar reasons. But the, the, the thing where I was going to go to, I think there is also just this in terms of ego for me, this pride of being able to just see how much you can you can build yourself um and like where like mm-hmm. where your or my <laughs> limits lie and yeah. i don't know if this is the, yeah i was gonna say i don't know if this uh this this is how you think of things and there's um oh uh there's a there's this awesome documentary called uh the barkley uh marathon and it's uh this guy who was a very accomplished ultra marathoner so races in the hundreds of miles like absolutely nutty and so he created his own and it's in the it's like i think that in these like crazy mountains in in tennessee and the landscape is just brutal like you're running through like these scrublands that are like all nettles and sting you and i don't know parts of it is like looks like a like forest where it's easy to get lost and you have to you have to figure out how to apply to join and so even that is really difficult and you figure out how to find information about this race and then you can apply and then you can get in. And then once you get in, it's it's like regarded as one of the most difficult um, races where the course is set. Uh, it's different every time and you have to run it, I guess, forwards one way and then back the other way. And then you have to you prove that you get back by like collecting pages of a of a like he leaves little paper books, uh, paperback books around and it, like it's absolutely insane. You, you yeah, should, anyone it. listening should check this out. But he's got this phrase in it, which I think he's being asked, like, why do you make this so difficult, or why do people even do this? Apparently, it, it, it attracts a lot of people with PhDs and super high performing people. And it's like, well, why? Why would anyone do this just to fail? And his response has always stuck with me, which is that, well, you never know what you're capable of until you fail. Like that's the that's the high water mark that you're never gonna you're never gonna see, and um, <laughs> I feel bad like bringing this up like as if this is why you're doing Canopio. <laughs> I, I think especially it makes sense for yeah for runners, and I imagine yeah people who just want to make things is yeah like 
I don't know, eventually there comes a point where you're just not that hireable just because you want to do something different after a point. Um, I think, yeah, and I think I, I would imagine that running race is like, it's like a race for people who race a lot, like a runner's runner. Yeah. Um, and that's, Absolutely. yeah, probably a really rare thing. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's interesting. I don't want to like say that that's what um, you're doing, but I know I definitely have that in my projects. I know, I know I definitely have that in my projects and I see... I see you being able to be like bring this awesome design to it and the entrepreneur entrepreneurial part and the coding. And um, it's really just uh, for me, very impressive to see like everything that you can bring on this. And I do hope that that uh, anyone listening, um, you know, will check it out and also just see that as as inspiration for what is possible. You know, just if you're listening, like you can you can build things for for yourself as well. Uh, so thank you so much for for coming on. Um, where can people find out more about you and your your projects online? Yeah. So, I mean, my home on the Web is pkethpcap.org. Um, and that's like my blog. I write about all the cool stuff. But, you know, obviously, besides that, you should definitely check out canopio.club. Uh, that's K-I-N-O-P-I-O. I see you have show notes or something, but yeah, um, I'll put that in there. Yeah, cool. I don't know why I spelled it then. Uh, but anyways, yeah, check those two out. They're pretty great. Uh, perfect. Prashant, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior. Recruiting at tech events can be one of the best ways to find and hire senior software engineers. Unfortunately, it's easy to make simple mistakes and wind up with no leads. Grab my free 12-point recruiting checklist to maximize your sponsorship investment at superstruct.tech slash event dash recruiting dash checklist.